these uh, longer retreats that we sit here, not so many of them available for people in this country, um, but they, they afford us the time to be able to do a little more exploring some of the more, uh, I would say, extensive or deeper forms of, of the teachings. So uh, we wanted to share with you uh, one of the aspects of how um, this whole thing works over a number of days, because we have so many days. Everything that the Buddha taught, everything, was all for one thing, liberation. Freedom from suffering, freedom from struggle. Everything is in service of this. It all boils down to the same thing. He says, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. This in itself is quite interesting. He doesn't say, I teach the end of suffering. In fact, he takes a lot of time teaching about suffering. This suffering, I'll talk more about it, the struggle that we experience. Following on along from uh, John, who was talking to you on Saturday night, doesn't just kind of like show up. It isn't just random suffering. It's caused. There's a reason. And so the Buddha, in his brilliance, said, well, let's figure out the cause of the suffering. You can't just have an end of something if you don't know what the thing is you want to end and you don't know what causes it to be there in the first place. Just as a doctor needs to know an illness, you can't just say, be well, eat good food, be happy, don't get stressed, you'll be fine. Their role is to find out what's the problem, to go into the details of your experience, the symptoms, what's been going on, and see what can be ameliorated. And the Buddha often called himself a doctor. So he, this brilliant being with this unbelievably penetrating mind, he could see the potential goal, liberation, freedom from all the experiences of stress that accompany our normal way of seeing things. And he could see the obstructions to that experience, and he could see how one can remove the obstructions. It's brilliant. And the most central structure of his teachings are, as you all know, I'm sure, these four truths. The four noble, they're called, or ennobling truths. Now, these truths aren't just noble. They don't just, there they are, noble. They actually are only noble in that they free us. Four of them. You know what they are. There is this experience of being dissatisfied or stressed, anxious. Dukkha. This is caused because we live in any moment that we feel that feeling of this isn't quite it. I was talking about the last time because we want something a little beyond it, something else. We want other. That's the description of the disease. We don't need to. We cannot have that feeling of anxiety if we relinquish that wishing it were other. 
freedom, nibbana, number three, number four. If we pay attention to these three aspects of our lives, we will cause this letting go, this shift of our, of our habitual perception. So, number one, we struggle. Number two, because we want other. Number three, we don't need to. We can be free of that one and two if we attend to number four. So you can see number two, wanting, is the cause of the stress. And number four, following the Eightfold Path, is the cause for freedom from one and two. These are causes and conditions. This is the principle that we're going to be exploring throughout this retreat. So one and two, this feeling of angst or struggle, not quite satisfied, that we experience almost constantly. And the reason, because we're always wanting it to be different, are the description of our way of being, our typical untrained experience in life, over and over and over. I want this. Either I don't get it and I'm dissatisfied because I haven't got it or I've got it and now it doesn't quite do it and now I'm bored with it nor it's broken and I want another one or something. Over and over. Going nowhere. Going a little somewhere and then we find ourselves again, back again at the same old place. Now we want something else. Now this isn't good enough. Round and round we go. This is called the cycle of samsara or the wheel of samsara. The way we do it chasing our tails, spinning our wheels. Like I think of mice in little, you know, like has anybody had pet mice running in their wheels? I had pet mice as a little girl. And I've oftentimes just watched while sitting this process of endlessly and the next and the next. I mean, they just, they don't just run for the fun of exercise like we would do yoga. They're really trying to get somewhere. (laughs) But they don't get anywhere, just like us. That's one and two. The description of our general limited state, our sorry state. Three and four are the descriptions of freedom from it. All forms of struggle, stress, anxiety, fear, judgment, excitement, disappointment needing, yearning, planning, our dukkha, all forms of other than peaceful ease. This is Hafez, a little poem. Jealousy is another one. Jealousy and almost all of our sufferings are from believing we know better than God. Of course, such a special brand of arrogance as that always proves disastrous and will rip the seams in your caravan tent and then cordially invite in many species of mean-biting flies and strange thoughts that will beat you up. That's his description of dukkha. These teachings, the Dharma, they are descriptive. They're descriptive in unbelievable detail if you're interested. The precision with which it was seen by the Buddha and described how 
when we, this happens to us, then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. The detail is unbelievable. The subtlety, the complexity, the clarity. It's both a description, but he, one, uh, one sutta, I'm sure many of you know, he says that what he has come to understand is like all the leaves in a forest, and what he actually teaches are like five leaves. So he can see and understand an enormous amount of depth, but his role isn't to just give us a bunch of information. His whole role is to free us, to help us understand what actually works to free us. And so so his teachings aren't informational per se. They are informational so that in the understanding we can apply the understandings to free us. It's all about the practice of it, not theory not conceptual for its own sake at all. And what he saw, one of the things he saw was this principle of how not just this is the way it is, but how everything is a Nietzsche for one thing, everything is moving, and how something that you would take as something isn't actually something. It is anatta. It is only there because of the causes and conditions that were such to make it manifest. And then it will become causes and conditions for the next moment to manifest, and on and on. Everything is in this flow of receiving input from the prior moment and the prior conditions to manifest and co-creating the next. On and on it goes, everything. And so his descriptions, the way he saw and understood, were in this uh, model deeply true. Conditionality, the causal sequence. And he said, in seeing this way, and in seeing how we are, the numbers one and two truths, we struggle and because we're wanting something. Just those two, one is conditioning the other. But how that wanting causes the struggle, he saw clearly, and described in the teaching that uh, John was talking about on Saturday, these 12 steps, how one leads to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. So he saw so precisely and subtly that whole samsaric circling around and round. So in one way we can take heart from the fact that it's almost all inevitable. Something happens to us, we get the impact of something, a sound or somebody says something, We hear it, we feel it, we notice it, we interpret it, we react, we respond, we say the next thing. There we are, going round and round, trying to be happy. It's so quick, it's so automatic, it's so ingrained. We're not bad, we're not doing anything wrong. But we don't see, like he saw, how this whatever the experience, the impact and our response and therefore our next moment, how that causes the suffering that we inevitably end up feeling. But it's possible to see it. And similarly, the way numbers three and four work are also perceivable in this causal model which he also saw and described in great detail. And interestingly enough, 
There are 12 links that way too. And I'll get there in a few minutes. As Bhikkhu Bodhi, the scholar monk, says, the entire course of man's faring in the world, as well as his treading the path to its transcendence, both the mundane, that's the samsara, the normal way we go about it, and the transcendental, the freeing us, are all governed by this single principle of dependent arising. And this principle that he saw working, he didn't just see how, you know, that there is this this human mind and this heart. He saw the whole uh, journey that we go on, the way we move, the way the mind moves, the way it tends to move and the way it can move. And all of the teachings he gave, and this again is Bhikkhu Bodhi, who has such a encyclopedic and... Um, inclusive way of saying things. He says an awful lot with a few words, in other words. This is central principle of the teachings of the Dharma, both the description of the content and the basic framework for this vast network of teachings and practicings. This conditioned, this causal way that we, we uh, operate. And this is the way the Buddha said it in its most simple words. This being then that exists. Through the arising of this, that arises. This not being, that doesn't exist. Through the ceasing of this, that ceases. We know this is true. It's pretty simple. The information is pretty simple for the cognitive mind. But the value of these teachings are how do we see this working inside ourselves and how can we effect the change from the the mouse going around its wheel, us going around chasing our tails to becoming free. We need to understand this principle. So I'll just briefly revisit the 12 steps that run through the samsara circle, our usual trapped way of going through things, the dependent origination or paticca samupada, not in any particular order, of course, because it's a circling, but we'll start where they typically start, which is ignorance. Avijja, for those scholars who want the words, Pali, I'll say them. Ignorance leads to karma formations, that intentional acting, sankhara, leads to consciousness, this human being, this consciousness, vijnana, leads to the awareness that there is materiality, stuff, sounds, and consciousness that knows it. So mind and body together. Nama, the name, and rupa, the thing. Awareness of the object. Which is only there because we have this faculty of six sense doors. The house that John has talked about with these five windows, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the mouth, the whole body, and then this thinking mechanism going on inside the six sense spaces, ayatana. This faculty, this this being with these six faculties, perceives pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral in things, vedna. And when we perceive something's pleasant, we like it. We go, hmm. That's called craving. 
It's not really craving, that's a really loud word, but it's actually wanting. It's like, oh. And that, when we do that, we, that very, very easily hardens into, I have to have it. This is really significant and it really matters, that's clinging. The first one, craving or wanting, is tanha, and the clinging is upadana. Then when we cling, we release, then some reality starts to manifest, becoming bhava, and then this, the new moment, the new me, the new I, um, a needy person, takes birth, jati. And with this birth, life lives out its circle and comes to an end and dies. Seen in the course of a human life, this can be seen in the course of human life, taking birth, living out, and then disappearing and ending creates dukkha because it's never permanently okay. It's always going to come and then go. Dukkha. Those are the twelve. And the Buddha said, this unfolding of experience, one after the other, after the other, is, is so inevitable, it's as inevitable as the rain falling from the sky, which then inevitably trickles down into the little clefts of the rocks, which inevitably fall down and gather into the gullies and become creeks, and the creeks become pools and swell up as they keep inevitably filling as the rain is falling till they overflow into streams and the streams become rivers and the rivers become the ocean. It is an unstoppable movement. You start with rain falling and you will have more going into the oceans. There's no way for that not to happen. So we can be reassured we're not doing anything wrong. Our minds will do that. They will get us caught up again and again. We will find ourselves dissatisfied again and again. We are all conditioned in this way, in, in, in moments and in our whole personalities, for instance, in the whole way we go through life, in the whole way we have our tastes, we have our tendencies, we have our beliefs. Everything has come in that same way by, because we're conditioned. I grew up in Dorset in England. My favorite environment is fields. My daughter was born in British Columbia rainforests. Her favorite environment I find completely oppressive. It's rainforests. She was born there. That's home and safe. It's just conditioning. We are the products of our environment. We're not as independent as we like. We really think we have free will. But, you know, our choice, our taste is so conditioned. We're nothing like as independent as we really kid ourselves. However, there are a couple of places in that inevitable unfolding of streams to rivers to oceans in our experience where the uh, momentum is a little thin and it's possible to shift it. And it's only possible to shift it through really seeing clearly. And we can only see clearly when we've steadied our gaze as I've already talked about in one of the questions I was talking about last night, was turning our viewfinder from this rather sketchy way of seeing to the steady gaze so we can see clearly. But as we do, we can actually see it's possible. When we experience in those procession of, 
of uh, links going off, when things are pleasant or unpleasant, if we recognize that that's really unpleasant, we can catch ourselves before we start hating it. Or if we can say, oh, it's a beautiful day, we can catch ourselves before we say, I must make sure I come here next year for a holiday and start planning out of it. We can just allow it to be pleasant, knowing that it's pleasant, and leave it alone without it sucking us into the inevitable next having to have it thing or the opposite. That's a place that is possible to not get sucked in. We need a steady gaze, we need to practice doing that, but it's possible. And if we don't catch that, the next link is also possible. It is where we already want something. Something's nice, it comes our way, we like it, we think we we would like that. But we don't need to move forward in having to have it. So, uh, cookies, there were cookies uh, on the table. We get cookies, you don't get cookies, but we do. So there were cookies down in the yurt. (laughs) The perks of lots of practice. (laughs) So uh, there were these cookies there on the table, and it was a a recent meal. I was sitting there, and um, I didn't break my chain at this point. I thought, ooh, look, cookies, and I ate one. I didn't think, nice cookie. I never, never crossed my mind. I was lost in conversation, and so down went one cookie. And my hand went out, and in my hand was another cookie. When one of the people who give their you know, lives these days to working here to help run the facility, who live here, said, um, would you pass over that cookies before there are none left? Because there's now only one left in the thing. That's when the liking the cookie moved into the having to have it part. But that's possible to break it. I could have had one cookie, for instance, and been a wise Dharma person and said, hmm, that was a very nice cookie. I don't have to have the next one. I could have, if she'd been a little more gracious and shared it around to some other people instead of just taking it. That's where, that's where the tanha moves into the having to have it, the next step. So even if we don't catch that first step of that's nice, looks like it's attractive, we already, we can have the taste, we can like it, we don't have to be moved compulsively. The reason that we usually don't notice that, like that example of me, is what the Buddha called ignorance. Simply meaning, I don't realize what's going on. I wasn't paying attention to the cookies. I was having a conversation with Sharda, actually. And I was so enjoying the conversation with her that I wasn't paying attention to what my hand was doing and my (laughs) mouth was doing. That's ignorance. That's all it means. It's not noticing. When we notice, we have choice. I was uh, professionally, I was a midwife for about 20 years, and for about 28 years I was a childbirth educator. And one of the uh, things that I taught in those uh, workshops I taught was... um, this little principle, until you know you have a choice, you don't. If you don't know there's any choice, you are completely, inevitably compelled to go the way you believe there's only one way to go. So fear, for instance, of pain in labor would be you know, a pretty typical way to go until you realize you actually don't have to be afraid of it. You can learn skills to help you deal with it, for example. This is just what we mean about 
ignorance or lack of ignorance. When we're ignorant, we are, we're sucked in over and over to that wheel of samsara that inevitably is the producing of, of dukkha. But when we realize we have a choice, we can look clearly, stay aware, and we can actually choose to have another cookie or not. There's a break in that compulsion. The Buddha says this, monks, he says, who initially were men, for he who knows and sees the cankers are destroyed, not for one who does not know and does not see. That's what we mean by ignorance. Knowing and seeing, that's what we're practicing. It's actually seeing and knowing. When we see what's going on, we realize, oh, wanting has moved into grasping. In my case, actually, was selfish. I see it, and then I understand that's how it works. And then I understand the consequences of that. So, numbers three and four of these truths if we can relinquish this ignorance, and we therefore can relinquish this, I'll be happier if I have another cookie in my mouth feeling, um, leads, leads to a sense of contentment. If I didn't live with, like, I needed that other cookie, I'd have been more content. I didn't realize that I wanted another cookie and I wasn't perfectly happy without it. And number four is the Eightfold Path, which helps condition this letting go of this ignorant state of endlessly wanting it to be something else. So most of you know, but I will just list these eight aspects of the Eightfold Path. They're actually um, in groups. There's the group which is called sila, behavior, active behavior in our lives. This covers our speech, our actions, and our livelihood. The specifics about speech given in the instructions of this is not to cause harm with our speech. And how we don't cause harm with our speech is we don't speak harshly or meanly or angrily, offensively, that's one. We don't, it's called babble. Just like chatter about nothing, like just endless meaningless drivel, that's not helpful. We don't actually tell what's not true, we speak truly. And we don't say things that will turn anyone against anyone. One of our our colleagues and a teacher of mine, Joseph Goldstein, made a vow at one point years ago to not um, speak any of those things. And he said he had about like 3% of his speech left because everything else (laughs) was either babbling or you know, gossiping or... No, actually what he decided was, oh, and it was even less. He decided not to speak about, just speak about somebody who wasn't present. That's right. And he just said that was it. You know, 75%, 95% of what he was going to say wasn't now available to him. It's very interesting to notice. So that's speech. Then there is um, action. And action is covered a lot in those precepts that we take regularly. It's not to steal things. Um, it's not to... Uh, it's, just, it's, a, it's about including our speech, of course. Not to harm anything. Not to take life or to disrespect life and so on. Um, and our, our sexual energy. You know, making sure our sexual energy is not harming in any way. Not exploiting, not oppressing, not deceiving, etc. And livelihood, because we spend so many of our hours doing things 
is what we're spending our hours doing within these guidelines, these recommendations, not causing harm. That's the, that's the action section, sila. Then there's the, the training section, the meditation section, three of these. Wholesome or wise or skillful effort, mindfulness and concentration. The effort is also brilliant. The efforts are, for those who, I love this stuff because it's all organized and I love being organized and it's organized so clearly with numbers. It's so well laid out. It's perfect for the people, spatial people like me. I'm visual and I can just put it all out on a table and count and get it. You know. Four efforts. The effort, for the attempt is to be free, obviously, to behave the best we can not upset, not angry, not disappointed, to be okay, fine, content. And how these four are, when we feel content, how to keep being content? Attempting to stay this way, to realize I'm feeling good, I'm feeling easy, I'm trusting, I'm feeling friendly and kind and considerate. Know it. By knowing it, it's like, oh yes, we're welcoming it, we're able to give it a little attention which helps it stabilize and stay here. When we're not feeling like that way, it's how to invite ourselves to be that way. How to encourage. I can be generous. I can be thoughtful. I can do some kind act. I can not worry so much. No, that's the next one, sorry. How to, how to invite wholesome states of mind is the second. The third is when I'm um, not feeling so great, I'm irritated or depressed or anxious, whatever, negative state. How to abandon that? How to help myself not be that way? And the fourth one is not to get in trouble in the first place. To, to prevent or to avoid harm from arising when it hasn't arisen. So choosing our companionship wisely. Or no, I actually am really tired and if I go and talk to this person, I know I'm going to end up regretting saying something. So I'm not going to have a conversation at this point. I'll talk to them tomorrow. That kind of careful behavior that prevents us getting into trouble. Those are the four of effort. And then they are. So these are the three under the section of mind trainings, meditation trainings, mental training in that way. Uh, mindfulness, what we're all doing here all the time. And uh, concentration. Concentration, steadying, stabilizing, calming down the mind, developing the ability to steady and steady and steady the gaze. That can be developed enormously. One of, the, one of these evenings, no doubt, somebody's going to talk to you about you know, the actually progressive aspects of this, this training, concentration. A lot of you have done a lot of concentration training, the description of the jhanas, which are deep, deep concentrated states. So those are the other three. There's the three behavioral aspects to these eight modes of behaving, being, three um, meditation type ones, effort, mindfulness, and concentration, and then two which are more wisdom, understanding. And these two are understanding things in terms of this very layout that I'm describing, that we want and therefore are dissatisfied and endlessly dissatisfied, one and two, or we pay attention to these eight ways to live and find that we will not get caught endlessly wanting, be free of it. These are the four truths. If we understand our lives in terms of this description, this 
brilliant explanation of how we will see how we get caught and how we don't need to. That's one of these two aspects of understanding. And the second one is to um, just be aware of how we are thinking. It's not quite the same as the efforts. It's like not being negative, not being cruel, and not wanting and needing. It's an, I don't even think it's... A, it's like another way of adding what I've already been saying. And you already can see how one explanation is here in another list, a slightly different way, so that they over, overlap each other. So this is the eightfold path. Sila, three behavioral things. Samadhi, training, mental training, concentration. And Panya, wisdom, understanding. So Buddha said... The first one, there's this feeling of dissatisfaction, dukkha, is because it wasn't just saying, this is what is there. It was a prescription for healing us. This must be understood. Well, what this means to understand is like really, really live with it. Not just theoretically understand, but stand underneath the impact of that. Be with that feeling of dissatisfaction. Really, really get to not just know it. A lot of our knowing we think of it as in our minds, but like really live that. Get to really inhabit and be inhabited by this feeling of dukkha. Well, is this radical or what? This is not what we want to do. We want to be free of it. Why would I want to go and feel it? But he's taught dukkha and the end of dukkha. He didn't just teach, don't do that, let's end it. He said, let's go there and learn it and see how it causes us trouble. And that's the only way we're going to be able to not do it. We have to be so familiar with how it is, how it works, what it's like, what it feels like. Chogam Trungpa, Tibetan teacher, said, um, the way to the sky is through the clouds. It's not around the clouds or wait till the clouds aren't there. It's through them. The way to freedom is via the obstructions to freedom. We need to go into dukkha and understand it, to welcome it. Understand dukkha, the first of these truths. The second of these truths, because we want, we're always wanting to relinquish that to stop doing that. Stop wanting the next moment. The next moment's going to be better. That extra cookie will just make it perfect. To stop this endlessly looking somewhere else, somewhere else. Instead, enough already. Here. I'm here. This is my life happening now. We are the ones we've been waiting for. This moment is the moment we've been waiting for. You can see we need to train to do it because we don't believe this. We haven't done it this way. Relinquish this endless, if only, rainbow chasing. The third, Nibbana, release, freedom, is to be realized. But you can't make ourselves realize it. If we would, we would all be Nibbana wallers. It is to be realized. How does it become realized? The only way it can be realized, freedom from that other habitual circling that we're caught in, is to develop the fourth, which has to be developed or cultivated, lived. So those eight steps, that fourth truth, the eightfold path, has to be lived. 
lived, lived. That means practice, practice, practice. With our behavior, with our understanding, and with our training our minds. And as that, which is why we're here doing this, becomes increasingly lived, then we start shifting our perception. And you all are, and we get to witness it. It's the most beautiful part of what we do, is to actually observe this whole thing working. And you're what we see it working in. And you get to share it with us. It's the most amazing. I mean, to live it ourselves and to have the experiences we all have is wonderful. And then to have friends and colleagues who are similarly sharing these fruits is a fantastic thing. But to actually witness it over and over, day after day like this, is the most nourishing thing imaginable. Like, I think I have the best job on the planet. So how do we actually live? Well, we, we do what we follow the instructions, we practice and practice and become aware of this. But there's even more specifics which are so helpful here. If we can live in the moment, in the moment, with this reference of the Four Noble Truths, we can more ably go from the, the circling into samsara into the freedom to, like there's one and two and there's three and four, we can switch. So in a moment we can say, am I wanting something? Or am I not? Is there a sense of not quite this? Am I wanting to be more concentrated? Am I wanting to have less pain? Am I wanting the bell to ring? Am I wanting it to stop raining? Or not? Is it just the way it is? And you can, we, we all through our experience here, we go from one to the other. We are just sitting here, minding our own business, everything's just happening fine, and then something happens and we want something. We flipped into the other one. We flip back and forth. We can see it just in terms. Am I struggling? Is there a sense of dissatisfaction? Am I wanting something else? Different? Less? More? Or not? It's, 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 it's that accessible. Right here. Any time, all the time, any moment, every moment. We need to help us do this, to wake up to this possibility, this choice. One of the things we really need is, is some, some word, usually, something, to make us realize, you know, this old way of doing things doesn't quite work. We need two things, actually. One thing is we need s- somehow to hear that there is a choice. Some words of truth, some, some phrase somebody says, some conversation, some little comment... A comment that I had, I was just telling uh, people at breakfast, I think it was before the cookies happened. I don't think I ate cookies at breakfast. But anyway, it was another, it was not, it was another yurt story, but I was telling a story of a, a time that happened in my life, which was a hugely significant moment that sent me off from my habitual being stuck one. Started my whole seeking, basically. It was one of the earliest ones, where um, I had been married for about three months, and... Uh, I had been living with this man for about a year before we got married. And we got married, and 
nothing changed. I was 22, and I thought that now we were married, it would be better. <laughs> and uh, it was the same. And he was one day outside tinkering yet again with the Volvo, and I was inside feeling neglected and complainy, and was visiting with a friend who was visiting us, my friend Barry. So I was complaining to Barry about my husband's not giving me the attention that he was giving the car and that nothing had happened since we got married. And Barry said calmly to me, have you ever thought it might be you? <laughs> I honestly, I felt it like, oh, like somebody had just punched me in the solar plexus. I doubled over. And interestingly, coincidentally, um, I don't know what you're going to now think of me, but because of the last story I told, on the, on the, <laughs> on the side table over there, uh, were three loaves of bread. I had just made my first loaves of bread, and they were a disaster, as usually one's first loaves are, I think. Anyway, they're like little three rocks sitting there on the... T- <laughs> just so happened. Anyway, so Barry said this to me. I felt I totally heard, I really, really did understand that my expectation of the world to make me happy was wrong. And it was my projection onto the world that was actually describing the scenario. It wasn't his fault. It was because I was wanting. It was me And it was my reality that was going on here, not the world. I had no consciousness of that before that moment. If the world was suitable to me, I was happy, and if it wasn't, I was, and that was how it was, completely dependent on the external. So off I went within an hour or so to the local newly opened Banyan bookshop in in Vancouver. And uh, I had never been in it before, and I had no clue of any of this stuff. And I went in there, and there were like shelves and shelves of groovy-sounding books whose titles I could not pronounce. They were all words from other countries, and, you know, Ooh, Silananda, Ramana Hashir, Gurji for and I was like, <laughs> I really wanted something here. I knew there was something I should understand, but I couldn't find anything that I could connect with, and I'm scanning the bookshelves, and I see Tassajara. I didn't know how to pronounce that, but Tassajara bread book. <laughs> so I bought my first spiritual book, went home, read it, cover to cover, and made beautiful bread, which I then put on the side table beside the other bread. That was this like perfect picture of Heather beginning to get it, you know. So we need somebody to say something. I needed Barry to say that to me. That we, but the other thing we need usually is a kick in the pants. We usually need dukkha. We need something. And it's interesting, like somebody I was talking with today was saying how he was actually really grateful for he had this terrible back pain because without this terrible back pain, he would never have changed his lifestyle, taken this time to be with himself, explore his inner blah, blah, blah. One of your um, forms, of you know, your, your questionnaires we ask you to fill out, reason for coming on the retreat, dukkha. <laughs> <laughs> When I went to my first uh, 10-day retreat, heartbreak. Relationship over. Nice young English woman left with an illegitimate child. That's not what my mother would have approved of. I needed help. I went to meditation retreat. Usually it's dukkha that makes us have to shift from this circling in samsara. It's true for all of you to some degree, I'm sure. 
so, we begin to look with this different look. We begin to think, maybe it's my reality, not the world's. Maybe it's about how I am perceiving, not what I am perceiving, where this happiness can be found, this freedom from stress can be found. So these, these truths, uh, in the Eightfold and in, in the Four Noble Truths, three and four, are described also by the Buddha, as I said, in another process. The way one and two are described in that process of, of twelve links, so are three and four described in another circling of twelve. But this circling of twelve doesn't go round and round, ending nowhere. It goes spiraling up and up and up and up to freedom. And it's the most beautiful unfolding of freedom. And it, it, it just follows the same principle as the other of causation, of one leading to another, leading to another. But it doesn't lead us back to suffering. It leads us out of suffering to freedom. But it's, it's one does lead to another in a known, understandable, predictable landscape, familiar. So that gives such confidence because it works. One thing leads to another, leads to another. Once we make this shift, once we start applying ourselves to being curious, to being present, to looking, these unfold. I'm going to list them for you. This is the list of dependent origination, but it's the transcendental dependent origination. Just as the other is dependent origination, it's the one that frees. And it begins with dukkha. Dukkha, of course, doesn't always send us into freedom, but at some point it may, and it has for us. That's why we're all here. So we begin with dukkha, turn to our inner lives. And then comes the next, which is trust, confidence, faith, sadha. And then comes contentment, or delight, pamoja. And then comes rapture, or piti. And then comes pasadi, or calm serenity. And then comes bliss, or sweetness, sukha. Then comes concentration, or steadiness, samadhi. And then comes knowledge and vision of things, just as they are. Yata bhuta nana danas dasana. Then comes disenchantment, that not needing, not being mesmerized by the things that we thought would work. Nibida. And then dispassion, the letting go of that reactivity that's triggered. Viraga. And then becomes what's called emancipation, the cessation of the endless becoming. Vimuti. And at last comes being at ease, deconditioned existence. I'm going to try and pronounce it right. I don't know how to pronounce it. Asavakayanyana. Is that right, Gil? Close enough. <laughs> enough already. The Buddha says about this list, these, these 12 things, stage flows over into stage. Stage fulfills stage for crossing over from the hither shore to the beyond. 
the hither shore of where we are, the state of not quite enoughness, to the beyond state of freedom, realization, ease. Stage flows over into stage like water inevitably and fulfills. So it's like it isn't just that these things, one leads to another, leads to another. It's that the, the quality of freedom is increasingly accessible in each stage, increasingly known by our inner wisdom to be the way to go forward. It isn't just like um, weather patterns, you know, where... I don't know, cold fronts meet warm fronts and thunder clouds arise and noise happens. Sort of the inevitable unfolding. There is a, there is a, a force at work that uh, it's like the, the goal of freedom informs each of these stages increasingly. I'm saying that piece because there is an increasing sense as we move through all this of, of certainty. So it doesn't need description, it doesn't need guidance, it doesn't need direction. Initially we need more help and more direction because the mind is so scattered. But as we begin to understand our own realizations, when we have a realization, one of the flavors when you have an insight is like, yes, I know I know this. It isn't like, oh my God, that's the weirdest thing. (laughs) Is it? There's a kind of like, I see something. We call it like, you know, the realization dawns on us. There's a rightness, a certainty. So that whole feeling of, uh, in, of movement, it, it becomes like that. We can trust it. Trust it. We trust the Dharma. And then Bhikkhu Bodhi said another couple of things which I want to refer to so clearly. This thing is not accidental. This unfolding of these developing aspects of our experience. They're not accidental, it's not compulsory, and it's not mysterious. They don't emerge fortuitously, nor through the operation of some inscrutable power, but originate conditionally, appearing spontaneously in the course of training, when their requisite conditions are complete. One, just again for clarification of language, the mundane world is the world of samsara, our normal, typical, slightly frustrated way of going through life. Transcendent is the way of disengaging from that wheel. Just to use vocabulary that you understand, kusala in Pali is unwholesome. That means leading again and again into this mundane samsara. Akusala the A before that word, is wholesome. And the word wholesome means leading to freedom. So we develop this confidence in how this whole process unfolds. And the confidence really we have is the Dharma. The Dharma is the truth of things. And the truth becomes ever more exquisite and uh, clear and appropriate and trustworthy. And we end up with more confidence. So that's why it takes less me efforting and more allowing and relaxing. So last night, for instance, Gil said two or three times, we don't actually do freedom. It happens. We do our practice and the understandings lead us and lead us. The Dharma does it. We get increasingly out of the way. 
she who protects the Dharma is protected by the Dharma. And we've all, all of us here, are on this journey and have all experienced some of these pieces. And we're just privileged to be able to share with you ours because we've all walked a lot of this. All in service of helping us all keep lightening our loads. It's kind of, I think, one of the blessings that we, is sort of the way it has been established here in the West is to have these longer retreats for students who've done a lot more practice with a lot of different teachers so that you understand from each of us our different ways and some of the things we've learned as we've gone along. Because it is like a smorgasbord, as I often say. And we all offer a slightly different way of describing some part of it. Because the way we work and the way our minds work isn't going to be the same way for everybody. So to have a, a shared sharing is, I think, very valuable. I'll end with just a few quotes. Oh yes, I think just before I get to the quotes to say the way we do offering whatever we can to try and make this helpful to you is like sowing seeds. You don't have to get everything everybody says. We're saying all these things and especially this kind of complex, all these numbers and stages. We're sowing seeds and they sprout whenever they sprout. Just receive them and don't worry about it. You hear it 5,000 times, then one day you go like, oh, that's what they've been saying for the last 20 years. (laughs) Sprout went to seed. (laughs) Mm. Rilke. If this is arrogant, God forgive me, but this is what I need to say. May what I do flow from me like a river, no forcing and no holding back, the way it is with children. Then in these swelling and ebbing currents, these deepening tides, moving out, returning, I will sing you as no one ever has, streaming through widening channels into the open sea. I'm in a Rilke mood. This is what many of you know uh, that he said to uh, the young poet in a letter about faith and fear. We have no reason to harbor any mistrust against our world, for it's not against us. If it has terrors, they are our terrors. If it has abysses, these abysses belong to us. If there are dangers, we must try to love them. And only if we could arrange our lives in accordance with the principle that tells us that we must always trust in the difficult, then what now appears to us to be alien will become our most intimate and trusted experience. How could we forget those ancient myths that stand at the beginning of all races, those myths about dragons that at the last moment are transformed into princesses? Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are only princesses waiting for us to act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is, in its deepest essence, something helpless that wants our love. So you must not be frightened if a sadness rises before you, larger than any you've ever seen. If an anxiety like light and cloud, shadows move over your hands and everything that you do, you must realize that something's happened to you. Life has not forgotten you. 
It holds you in its hands and will not let you fall. Why do you want to shut out of your life any uneasiness, any miseries or depressions? For after all, you do not know what work these conditions are doing inside you. That will do for tonight. Let's just sit quietly for a minute or two. Thank you for your attention. I hope it's helpful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.